0: Hi, and welcome to another breast cancer podcast from BJ Oncology. In today's episode, we are joined by leading breast cancer specialists, Sarah Tillaney, Paolo Tarantino, and Sarah Sammons for a roundtable discussion on the latest advances in breast cancer, as presented during the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium. This informative and engaging conversation will explore findings from Capitello 291, latest evidence in the use of CERDs and other novel ER degraders, strategies post-CDK4-6 inhibition, as well as biomarkers of response to antibody drug conjugates. Join us as we delve deeper into the topic and gain valuable insights from top experts in the field.
1: Hi, welcome to this program focusing on San Antonio updates with VJ Oncology. My name is Sarah Tulaney. I'm a breast medical oncologist at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and I'm joined by two of my incredibly wonderful colleagues, uh, Dr. Sarah Salmons and Dr. Paolo Tarantino. Welcome.
2: Hi, everyone. Happy to be here.
1: Hi, everyone. So today we're going to jump right in um, and we're going to talk about a lot of the updates that actually happened initially we saw in hormone receptor positive disease. And I think one of the key takeaways that we saw was that there are lots of strategies to think about when someone progresses on a CDK4-6 inhibitor. And one of the questions that was addressed is, could we use an AKT inhibitor in this sort of second line post-AI population? And so we saw data from Capitello 291, which had randomized patients to get fulvestrant with or without assertive. So maybe Paolo, I'll, I'll start off with you. What was your main takeaway from this study and the findings that
3: we're seeing. I feel that this study fills an important gap that we have that is the second line after cdk 4 inhibitors where we have seen that fulvestrant really underperforms compared to what we observed historically. The PFS in most of the studies with all, only fulvestrant is around three months. And so showing that with a biologic drug, we can achieve up to seven and more months of PFS. And also there was um, a positive trend in overall survival in this study is very encouraging probably what we were not completely expecting is to see a benefit both in the biomarker selected population about 40 percent of the population and also in the overall population and apparently in the pathway non-altered although there were some unknowns that were included so i feel that we have to understand a little bit more about this biomarker non-altered but overall it's very important news and very intriguing data what did you think sarah of this data
2: For me, um, you know, this population, about 80% of patients had received a prior CDK4-6 inhibitor. So this is one of the first randomized phase three uh, endocrine therapy combination trials that really enriched for a post-CDK4-6 inhibitor population and and showed pretty substantial efficacy. So I think that's important. Um, You know, competitors to what this combination and the post-CDK4 space would be are fulvestrin everolimus. Well, we don't have a study in the post-CDK setting with that combination. Or, of course, fulvestrin alpelisib in a PI3 kinase mutant population. So when we're choosing between capi fulvestrin in a PI3 kinase mutant population um, or alpelesib fulvestrin, um, I think it's really going to come down to tox. And um, so I think that should probably, we should point out some toxicity
1: differences maybe between what we saw with capi. So what did you think if you were to juxtapose the toxicity, which I realize we should never really do cross-trial comparisons, but if you're thinking about rates of hyperglycemia, for example, and rash, and you're comparing alpalisib to Kepib assertive what were your impressions of the, the differences in toxicity?
2: Sure. So there's a bit less hyperglycemia. Um, the overall rate of hyperglycemia in this trial was about 16%, um, and most of it was low grade. So certainly less than the 60-ish percent um, that we see with Alpelisib. And in this trial, they included patients with a hemoglobin A1C up to eight, whereas in Solar 1, they did not include those patients. Um, so this would certainly be more of an option for patients where you were worried about hyperglycemia. Um, there was a bit more um, diarrhea in this trial, all-grade diarrhea was a about seventy percent. Um, most of it was low grade, um, and something that we can certainly handle in the clinic with anti So So, um, you know, it's still a um, endocrine therapy combination with some toxicity, um, mostly you know diarrhea, GI disturbance some rash, um, stomatitis, um, but, but overall I think something that we can manage um, and will be a good option for, for many patients.
1: Yeah, no I think it's really incredible to to see this agent have such robust activity you know particularly in the in a post-CDK setting which was you know the majority of patients in, in this particular trial with a little bit less tox than what we've seen with alpilisib so I think more to come so we'll I think we do need to understand the benefit in the biomarker non-altered population a bit better and hopefully once they get their ctDNA data and have fewer unknowns, hopefully that will help us tease out those differences. Um, So we also saw a lot of excellent data emerge about oral surge. so certainly we had seen data regarding elicestrin from the Emerald trial previously and are eagerly awaiting to see if this will get an FDA approval, hopefully in the very near term. Uh, But I think we're a bit disappointed by the very modest benefit that was seen in the overall population and even in the ESR-1 mutant population, and so there was an analysis done at ASCO really trying to tease out who those patients are who do derive long-term benefit from elicesterins, and so maybe, Paolo, you can tell us what you thought of, of this particular analysis.
3: I think it was very extremely helpful to see this analysis because it allowed to understand which is the population which might benefit the most of a monotherapy with endocrine treatment like this after progressing to prior CDKs and even other treatments. And I feel that this study and other studies presented, San Antonio, showed that the population benefit uh, benefiting of these novel thirds in this position is mostly patients that have ESR1 mutant disease and that derive benef- prolonged benefit for prior treatment with CDKs and we can see that uh, for patients that have um, received CDKs for at least 12 months and the the LSS achieved 8.6 months of PFS if they're also ESR1 mutant and this is very meaningful. Of course, it is not an extremely large population, but I feel we're going in this direction to try to tailor our treatment based on the disease characteristics. And and so in this case, I really feel that this analysis will help us understand how to use this drug once hopefully it's approved.
1: Yeah, uh-huh. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think seeing that very steep drop-off in the curves in Emerald, you know, makes you worry that a lot of patients are rapidly progressing, but then there are those people who are on for a really long time and understanding who they are is really important because we don't use very much endocrine monotherapy post-CDK. And so figuring out that it's the people who actually were on their CDK for a long time and had an ESR1 mutation are the people who are really deriving the longer-term benefit. And I think agree, very helpful once we get an approval uh, to be able to help us select patients who may be uh, the people who benefit. But we're also seeing data about other oral CERNs, which is nice, particularly after, I think, a pretty disappointing ESMO, where we saw several negative trials. Now we're seeing a positive one, which was exciting, and this was Serena, too. Um, so Sarah, what did you think of this data with regards to camizestrant?
2: I definitely thought it was interesting. Um, I'm, I'm excited about the potential of this oral CERD. Um You know, they did two different doses of comazestrin. They used 75 milligrams and 150 milligrams, um, and then they used um, fulvestrin as the control arm. Um, And the median PFS was very similar with commisesterant 75 and 150. It was 7.2 months uh, with the 75 milligram dose and uh, uh, 7.7 months with the 150 milligrams versus 3.7 months. So first and foremost, I love that there were two doses included. I know that that's, you know, FDA um, pushing us to do that and really pick the right dose, but I'm I'm I love seeing that, um, and I believe the 75 milligram dose is what's moving forward. Um, and again, we're seeing a pattern. We're seeing who is really benefiting um, from these drugs, and it is more looking like um, the ESR1 mutant population is really who is going to drive derive the
1: most benefit from oral SERDs. And there were some unique toxicities with camisestrant. I don't know if you could tell us a little bit about um, what you commonly see with SERDs, and then what you thought particularly of of the toxicity with cami.
2: Sure, so when we're developing novel endocrine therapies, we always, or any therapies in metastatic breast cancer, we always have to get back to the basics until we cure metastatic breast cancer, quality of life, in my opinion, um, and my soapbox is as equally as important um, as trivial improvements in PFS. Um, But overall, this oral CERT is is pretty well tolerated. Um, You know, some of the, this oral CERT does have a unique toxicity um, of photopsia, um, which is sort of very um, low-grade visual disturbances we're seeing in about, 20% of patients um, that were low grade um, and and temporary. Um, And then they also saw um, very low grade uh, asymptomatic uh, sinus bradycardia. Um, So these are, you know, these are things that we have to think about, um, you know, when we're using this drug as monotherapy, um, potentially in the future, and certainly when we're combining um, this drug with, with other novel agents.
1: Uh, I think it's a, it's a good point, um, especially now as these drugs are really trying to move into the early disease space, into an adjuvant population and potentially replace AIs, and people will be on these drugs for a very long period of time. I think quality of life certainly will be critical as, as we think about, again, moving it even earlier. So there's also, you know, we've talked about some of these oral SERVs like and camazestrant. There are also other ways to degrade ER, and there's um, a different sort of class, if you will, um, of these kinds of drugs, being the protax, and there was some data presented for ARV471. Maybe Paolo, you can tell us what you thought of these data.
3: So First of all, I think that this drug is a very interesting mechanism of action and kind of shows that we can degrade the estrogen receptor and achieve responses and activity with this novel mechanism of action. At the same time, I feel that it's very hard to derive conclusion of this data because this was a very pre- highly pretreated population. And so it's not really the population where usually you might think of single agent endocrine therapy. And so you can see that here in, in this trial, in this phase two trial, the Veritac uh, ARV471 achieved a median PFS of months in the 200 milligram uh, dose, 3.7 months in the total population, uh, up to 5.5 months in the mutant, ESR1 mutant population. And I think something interesting to see was that the compound seemed very well tolerated. But once again, I feel we, we need more data probably in a, in a different setting, an earlier setting to understand if there is a role for, for this drug. And hopefully also in a randomized setting to understand how it compares to current standard of care.
1: Uh, you know, I think you're right. This was sort of a unique trial because, you know, most almost 80% of people had prior fulvestrant, about half the people had prior chemotherapy. So it was very late line. And I think what intrigued me was seeing a 50% CBR rate in an ESR1 mutant population in such a heavily pretreated group of people. I, I thought it seemed quite promising. And with the clean, tox profile, I agree. We need more, more data though. Uh, and so there is an ongoing uh, randomized study comparing it to fulvestrant. in fact plan study, combining it with CDK4-6 in the upfront first line metastatic setting. So I think we'll we'll see more to come and, and have to tease out how these different ways of degrading ER uh, pan out and what the right setting is for them. So I think another question about thinking about strategies post-CDK4-6, we talked about um, use of an AKT inhibitor. We talked about oral SIRS, but I think one of the lingering questions we've had is, is there a role for continuing cdk 46 inhibitors beyond progression? We had seen some data from Maintain presented at ASCO looking at the idea of using ribocyclob, predominantly in someone who had progressed on palbocyclob, with also changing the endocrine backbone, so changing both the endocrine backbone and changing the cdk 46 And In that setting, we did see the use of ribocyclob as a continuation strategy was successful with an improvement in PFS uh, compared to just using endocrine therapy alone in that setting. But here at San Antonio, we saw data from our colleague, uh, Erica Mayer, who looked at um, really the question of continuation of palbo post-palbo with a switch in endocrine backbone, and this was the PACE trial. Um, So Sarah, maybe I'll turn it to you, and what were your thoughts um, with regards to these data?
2: I think this is critically important data, because I think that people have been sort of doing this off label and and have had the question of if somebody has maybe mild progression on AI AI palbo, can we just, and they're tolerating palbo really well, can we just switch the backbone? Can we just switch them to palbo-fulvestrant? And this trial clearly answers that question for us. The answer is that we cannot. Um, Continuing palbo-fulvestrant after progression on AI um, palbo um, does not have any improved efficacy over just giving them fulvestrant alone. Um, So that is not a strategy that should be taken Um, you know, maintain um, was an interesting trial. Um, I think the question remains after Palbo, um, ribo or Bema, can you switch the CDK4/6 inhibitor and switch the endocrine therapy backbone? Um, and that question will somewhat be answered in the phase three post Monarch trial, which is ongoing. Um, but in such a crowded post CDK4/6 space now, um, this strategy becomes a little less appealing, at least to me. Um, but um, one of the most interesting things um, about this trial presentation, I think, was the uh, triplet arm. So the actual um, very surprising advantage in PFS and potentially OS um, with the addition of a valumab, so an immune checkpoint inhibitor um, added to palbocyclib and fulvestrin, which yielded um, a median PFS of 8.1 months. Um, And I think this is signal finding um, and very interesting. um, And toxicity with other combinations like this um, has has been inhibitory in the past. So I think interesting and hopefully more to come there.
1: Yeah, no, I I think this is a little disappointing because you're right, I think many people were doing this in practice, Um, you know, is an area where most people were getting palbo up front and people were thinking about continuing it beyond progression. You know, it's hard because these are randomized phase twos, both maintain and pace, and there are some caveats with that, right? I think in this case, I was a bit surprised by the performance of the control arm with Blavester and having a PFS over four months, and there were imbalances in the arm with the more endocrine population being in the control arm um, and more de novo patients. So you tended to see again, better performance. And so, you know, I think it's always hard to say this is definitive data, but we'll see more data to come. Palmyra will report looking at this question of palbo, uh continuation. And then I think a big question we've had is with regards to a right? Um, so we'll see post-monarch uh, and then even, you know, the Ember study looking at this question as well. So um, I think more to come, but I, I very much agree with you that but at this point in time, I would not use palbociclib after palbociclib, given the data that we have right now. Um, so, you know, I think we also saw a lot of interesting data come out about antibody drug conjugates, and you know, we do have post thinking about uh, CDK4-6 and AKTs and SERDs, we you know start moving towards chemotherapy. Um, and we had seen data at ASCO and at ESMO with regards to sasituzumab, gobatikin, a trope 2 ADC um, that we've already had approved in metastatic triple negative disease based on the ASCENT data, but have now seen data in the hormone receptor positive space with Tropic so 2 comparing sase to Chemo of choice in a very pretreated population, so people with two to four prior lines of chemotherapy. And we'd seen the PFS and OS data already presented, um, suggesting improvements in PFS and a little over a three month OS delta between the two arms, and so I think we are just really pending approval uh, of this agent. But I think one of the questions that continues to come up with ADCs is how to appropriately select patients, and are there biomarkers we should think about with one question in this case being, does Trope 2 level? impact benefits to sasetuzumab and should it be used to select patients for this agent. Um, so Paolo, what did you think of, of these data looking at trope 2 in in the 0 2 study?
3: I found these data very biologically challenging because, of course, when we think of antibody-run conjugates, we, we believe that the, the conjugate, of course, needs a target in order to internalize the compound into a cancer cell. But we are discovering that these agents act in a more complex way, in several ways, actually. And this might be one of the reasons why in tropics, so to the, the benefit of sustitutimab over traditional chemotherapy, was seen regardless of to expression. And this was very clear, especially at the overall survival analysis, where even in patients with less than... Uh, 10 exp- percent of expression of trop2 there was an overall survival advantage and so it really tells us clinically that we are not we don't need to assess for trop2 expression and and the same and so it's it's good news because it means that we can provide this benefit in terms of overall survival with castuximab for the overall population including in the study at the same time it tells us that we have probably to to study antibody drug conjugates more to understand what other um, components of the mechanism of action can be relevant in, for, in order for them to be active. For instance, internalization or bystander effect or any other means that can be enhanced in order to enhance their activity. And I think also extrapolating this, for instance, to TDXD that we've seen that was active, very active in HER2 positive disease, in HER2 low disease, and there was a hint also in the her to zero disease. And so In putting together all these data, probably these ADCs might have an activity in the overall population, but for sure we need to study this more. And one thing that is exciting is that we're bringing them in earlier lines. And so it's, once again, very important to understand how best to to use them compared to traditional chemotherapy.
1: Uh, No, I I think you're exactly right. Maybe just sticking on this biomarker theme, um, maybe you could also tell us about, the data that was presented from Destiny Breast 04 with regards to expression uh, or sort of central testing for HER2-Low and how that correlated with outcomes, because I think that's been a major question that has arisen, is how to select people for TDXD who
3: have HER2-Low disease. So absolutely, this was very complex because when the drug, when TDXC was approved for HER2-Low, we had an approval for HER2-Low metastatic breast cancer. But then we know that HER2-Low is, um, let's say an evol- evolving feature. A-, a tumor can be HER2-Low on the primary tumor and become HER2-0 in the metastatic setting and the opposite way around. And so it was pretty challenging to understand which patient we can consider HER2-Low. But then seeing the biomarker analysis from DBO4 presented um, really uh, help us uh, understand that the population including the trial was mostly enrolled based on archival samples or even primary tumor samples where her tulo expression was detected and the activity of tdxD in her tulo was confirmed e- even if her tulo was detected only on the primary tumor. And so I feel that for this population of patients, TDX that don't have the amplification over to TDXT can be uh, thought of, can be used uh, if if low expression is detected at any time point of the disease. And this helps us, will help us use the drug in the clinic. But there are still many uh, questions in the field that we need to answer. And hopefully, Destiny Breast 06, another phase three trial, will help understanding some of these questions but also some work that, that we are doing that we need to do in the real world will help understand if this evolution in HER2 low expression is impacts the activity of TDXD or, or not, and also what are the mechanism or resistance of TDXD in HER2 positive and in HER2 low disease.
2: I just want to point out something really clinically relevant that that showed me. It didn't matter for the HER2 low patients if it was from the primary, the MET setting, the time period. So, whereas I had previously been rebiopsying some patients to see if they were still her too low, I will not do that anymore, <laughs> and that will save cost and that will save, you know, patients undergoing a biopsy with potential risk and complications. So, when I'm giving standard of care patients, the only patients I'm going to re-biopsy are those patients who were previously her too zero, and I'm trying to get an indication to give them this drug in the med
1: setting. Yeah, uh, no, it's very, very helpful information. I think we'll certainly need more data, though, about what efficacy is of TDXD in someone who may have a recent biopsy that's HER2-0, because we don't actually have that data. But I, I very much agree with you that that's um, an important clinical lesson for now, and we'll see how this all evolves uh, with time. So maybe just to wrap up, one final study sticking on the TDXD theme um, is switching gears out of the HER2-positive spaces. We did see updated data from Destiny Breast 03, which had compared TDXD to TDM1, really in people who had previously progressed on taxane trastuzumab, so people who were TDM1 naive. And we had previously seen data with regards to PFS, but now we've seen updated PFS data and OS data. And so maybe, Sarah, you could tell us what your take-home message was from, from this study.
2: Absolutely. So the updated um, PFS data by Blind Independent Central Review was reported, um, and we saw a median progression-free survival of 29 months with TDXD versus 6.8 months with TDM1. Um, so a four, four-time improvement, um, which is absolutely remarkable. Um, and then I think what we've all been wondering is, is this going to pan out? to an overall survival benefit um, and, you know, the overall survival in both arms was still not reached, um, which is great news for our patients living with advanced um, metastatic or two positive breast cancer. These patients you know, are, are living for longer and longer, um, but there does seem to be a statistically significant improvement um, when TDXD is given. And the mostly, this, this trial I think of mostly is the second line setting um, over TDM1.
1: It's oh, really unreal. Uh, we've never seen a PFS like this in metastatic HER2 positive disease, even in the first line setting. You know, in Cleopatra, it's yeah. only about 18 months, right? This is crazy. As 28 months. It makes you wonder how TDXD will perform in the first line. Um, and so I think more to come on this drug, uh, not only moving it earlier, I think, and then also moving it into the early disease space where there are studies ongoing. So I think it was a, a wonderful San Antonio. And thank you so much to both of you for, for this outstanding discussion. It was great to hear your takes on the data. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe on your favourite podcast app, including Apple, Spotify and Podbean. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at VJ Oncology and check out vjoncology.com for the latest news of breast cancer care.